I think like, you know, the age of the courtesan seems to be coming back because I, I'm noticing that women um, are incredibly intelligent and well-read and just um, they are great conversationalists and funny and, um, you know, all of those things that you hear about the, the courtesans having been yeah. when that was something to be, you know, right. with, uh, you would be uh, the mistress of a king or, you know, someone else in a highly placed position. You weren't what people think of, you know, prostitutes being today, basically like street trash or throwaways, right. you know, yeah. um, I feel like that that's sort of coming back, you know, women are, um, they're incorporating sex work into something that's bigger they're they're uh, it's part of their identity and it's part of their their sexuality and they control it and they work it like a business right you know right which honestly how is that different from marriage yeah. <laughs> is shaking time to be free amongst yourselves some fucked up people in porn there are people who were sexually abused as kids there are people who are being pushed into it by asshole boyfriends drug addiction mental demons you name it but you know what those people are in every profession they're everywhere they're working at mcdonald's they're working at morgan stanley they're uh you know, Senate staffers there, everywhere you look, you're going to find those people. And I think what's really interesting is how as a society, we demonize anything having to do with sexuality in a way that we don't demonize that precise same thing in other parts of our society. I think about that when people talk about uh, sexual trafficking and, and people who are, are forced into sex work or, or not even forced into it explicitly or directly. But you talk about, um, prostitution in a place like Thailand and, or Vietnam or someplace like that where, uh, uh, it's seen as, as, uh, shameful and, and degrading and pathetic, but those same people don't seem to get upset about how shameful and degrading and pathetic it is to work in a chicken processing plant for a couple bucks a day or a sweatshop or children being forced into uh, carpet manufacturing centers in Bangladesh and so on and so forth, uh, working in virtual slavery. 
I'm not saying anything excuses anything else. I'm just saying that it's pretty degrading. I've worked at Burger King. I worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken. I pumped gas for minimum wage in every one of those places, which back in the day was three twenty-five an hour, I think. And then you pay tax on top of that. I'm not saying it's the same as prostitution, but I'm saying that work is degrading for many, many people in many different ways. And that if someone chooses to work in a profession that involves sexuality, the fact that they've chosen it makes it less degrading than someone who's forced into something and really has no choice. So whether it's prostitution, making porn films or, or what have you, there's not anything inherently more degrading about the fact that sex is involved. That's, that's the only point that I would make as an introduction to the first in a series of interviews I've been doing recently with very smart people who work in porn. And as I, as I think I say in this interview with Nika Noel, who was an actress for a while and now is behind the camera and running, uh, I think she said seven different studios, uh, making seven different sort of, uh, subgenres of pornography. Um, what I noticed in the time I spent in Thailand is that there are an awful lot of really smart middle-aged women running cafes and restaurants that they own. And the reason they own them is because they worked as prostitutes when they were younger and saved their money and invested wisely. And now they speak uh, several languages in addition to Thai. And they're very savvy businesswomen. Um, so there are a lot of su success stories involving uh, sex work, uh, particularly in Asia in addition to the horror stories that are featured in, in most of our sex-negative media. Um, so this is the first uh, interview I've done with uh, some people who are working in pornography and have been for quite a while and who are also very, very smart people. Uh, upcoming uh, interviews will post in the coming weeks are with um, Nina Hartley, who's a, a legend in porn, and uh, Connor Habib, who's uh, in gay porn. And uh, all of them are off the charts in terms of IQ. Anyway, before we get to the interview with Nika, I want to remind you to check out SureDesignT-shirts.com. Uh, they are in, located in Thailand, in Chiang Mai. Uh, excellent quality t-shirts, really nice designs, beautiful designs. Uh, Bennett, who owns the place, did um, a Sex of Dawn t-shirt for us, which we're already practically out of. Uh, I've had to reorder because they went so fast. They're so cool. Still awaiting for ChrisRyanPhD.com to be ready to go. We're setting up a store on the site so you can order directly through the site. Um, and, uh, you know, taxes calculated and shipping and all that stuff automatically. So if it's not up yet, it will be up within a few days. ChrisRyanPhD.com. 
The design on the T-shirts is by Levy Greenacres, L-E-V-I Greenacres, A-C-R-E-S dot com. You can see a lot of his work there. He's a tattoo artist in Portland, and he's got a new book called Mommy's New Tattoo, which is uh, very funky and cool and beautiful, available on Amazon.com and also through his website, I believe. Uh, if you haven't already and you have an account at iTunes, you could drop in there and uh, leave a rating and comment, which is always appreciated. I'm told that helps attract some sort of attention from the universe, which is good for us. And uh, also, uh, the podcast is available at feralaudio.com, F-E-R-A-L audio.com, where you can check out some other podcasts, including the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, a personal favorite of mine. And uh, that's about it. Thanks. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm sitting at the beautiful dining room table of Nika Noel. Is that the, that's, that's it's not Nika that's Noel or Nika oh, Noel. Oh, no, you don't, you don't have to do any little pretentious accents there are or no anything accents. like that. Good, good. I've lived in Spain for 22 years. You always have to watch out for the accents. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, but, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be that, that awful. But yeah. it's actually short for my, my real name, Monica. Uh, so. Oh, okay. That's easier to remember. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm still getting used to the the idea that people have multiple names in Southern California, at least people in the entertainment business. Yes. Everybody seems to have, you know, even people who aren't on screen seem to have stage names down here. Or they maybe, do. Some of the people I've met. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just I'm hanging out with a strange well, you crowd. Know, there's, the, there's the whole new age kind of thing that goes on down here and people sometimes yeah. rename themselves like Moonbeam. Right, something. right. A lot of it's that sort of tantric thing, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of goddesses. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I don't meet a lot of gods. There seem to be more goddesses than gods. I don't meet guys saying, I am a god. Well, I'm sure that would go over like a lead balloon with women. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm thinking. How come you could be a goddess and I can't be a god? That doesn't Double seem fair. Standard. Right. Well, they become doms, probably. Uh, the doms right. think they're gods. And right. they, you know, that's where they go. Right. Okay. I gotcha. BDSM community. I gotcha. All right. So, uh, I know a little bit about you. I don't know that much. I know like what you know when I Google you that right. you, and I've been following your, your tweets for the last month or so. Mm -hmm. Um, do you want to just sort of introduce yourself and for people who don't know who you are? Sure. Um, I'm an adult filmmaker. I've created seven studios over the last five, six years. Seven studios. Yeah. How does that work? What does that um, mean actually to create? 
create well, a studio? You mean like um, you know, I have an idea of a studio that I want to make, a type of film that I want to make, and um, the genres are kind of separate in course. Uh, I so see you, what you mean. Okay. You have like your girl girl studio where it's all uh, lesbian. Not a erotica. physical studio where you shoot. It's more a, a like a corporate Entity. Right. And right. it's, you know, obviously we shoot at different locations, but the studio exists and it's got a logo and it's got, you know, a name and oh, everything. Okay. And, right. um, and then all the videos that we put out under that studio's mm. name so that when people buy one of the movies from that studio, they know, well, this is all going to be lesbian oh, or see. this is going to be men and women together. So right. that they, because sexual fantasies are very specific. A lot of the time people only want to see this one thing that they're into. So yeah. they don't want to just get a surprise. You know? <laughs> What's that penis doing in my porn? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, get that very, very angry. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. So is that, yeah. what do you think that's about? Are those male viewers? Males oh. who are looking for woman, woman, and they get freaked out when they see a penis? Um, there are those men that just don't want to see a penis in, yeah. in their uh, porn. And, um, or elsewhere, suppose. Or elsewhere, <laughs> <presumably>. probably. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think there, there are different things. There are guys that like to watch, uh, boy girl porn and see the man because, um, for a couple of reasons that I've been able to sort of, um, discern from talking to people is that, uh, number one, they want to put themselves in the place of the man. Right. And number two, this was something that was more interesting to me that I, that I sort of realized after a while is that they want to see how a woman behaves when she's being fucked, you right. know, like when she's really getting it. They want to see then what is she like in bed. Right. So it's not even that they want to put themselves in the position of them, like they want to, you know, proxy themselves in, but they just want to see her behavior with a man. Right. So, right. Um, right. And then there are the guys that just don't, they, they don't, they seem to be more passive guys, more like, um, I don't know, like the, the girl, girl fans that are male. I hate to say this, but a lot of the time they're, they're very complainy and whiny and they just get very, <laughs> I argue with them on the forums all the time. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> we have a love-hate relationship. Yeah, so, so, so there are actually personality types that correspond yeah. to different porn preferences. I never I thought about so. that, but I it makes perfect so. sense. So, so can we run through the seven? Are, are each of the seven studios associated with sure. a different genre? Because I didn't um, even know there were seven genres oh. of porn. Oh, there are Let's more see. than okay, that. Okay, so we've oh got Girl gosh. Girl. You have a lot to learn. Uh, okay, this is going to be um, a, good, <laughs> a good podcast Where do for I me. begin with you? Okay, well, well, what I first did was I started um, with, my, with my former partner, Mile High Media. I started Sweetheart Video, which was a Girl Girl studio, okay. um, Sweet Sinner, which was Boy Girl. And that was, right. that was what kicked off the, quote, romance genre, couples porn. That was what really sort of, um, you know, put me into a different category, made me successful, was that there was nothing like that going on at that time. And right. so I, I started that. So that's with more of a storyline, more narrative, more, story better acting. And it was real sex. And it was um, What do you mean real sex? Well, I don't know how much porn you've watched, but if you if you do watch <laughs> porn, we, we won't get into it. But. Only for research purposes. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you if you've watched uh you know porn boy girl porn um you'll notice a lot of the time that uh the couple doesn't look terribly passionate about each other their um their body language is more playing to the camera right. than playing to each other right so they keep their bodies open right. all the time so that the camera can get in there and see the angles right. as a result if you're keeping your bodies 
open to the camera, you're not touching each other. The man has his hands behind his back or, you know, they're not looking at each other because the camera wants to see both of their faces. So that means they can't look at each other. Things like that that um, make it very mechanical. Uh, yeah. make it look very cold, mm. make it look like these couple, why are they having sex? They don't even look like they want to be having sex. And a lot of the time too, the, the, um, the producers have a, a quota of like, well, we need four minutes of a blowjob. We need three minutes of spooning. We right. need. And so they're going down this checklist and they're interrupting the couple oh, and saying, right, okay, right. That's enough of that. Okay. Yeah. Now get into Take now five. Get into we're going to set up the cameras. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I got you. And so. Okay. So you're actually, it's more almost a documentary, I guess, in the sense that you're actually filming people having sex as opposed to people faking or staging sex for your camera. I, I see. I like to say that that is what I'm doing in an ideal situation. That is what I'm doing is I'm just capturing something there and I don't have to direct it. Right. Um, but. What I'm ultimately doing, because I am making films, I'm not making documentaries, I'm making something, you know, for the fans that they they want to see this particular fantasy and sex being done this way, is I'm trying to create something even better than the, than the truth, better than the reality. Mm. All of the things that make sex hot mm. and um, make sex passionate, all of these things, um, I'm trying to... Uh, accentuate them amplify them right and sometimes that does require directing and the nice thing about it is that it's the kind of directing that people afterwards go that was great sex (laughs) like wow that was awesome because a lot of the time people they've stopped looking into each other's eyes they've stopped holding each other they they've stopped having really intimate sex they've defaulted into this other type of sex that isn't as gratifying do you work with the same actors that we would see in conventional porn oh yes Mm -hmm. so when when they're together this could be the first time they've ever met it could be right so isn't it difficult to establish intimacy in that sense or or do you prefer to work with people who know each other off the set it's always good to uh well that can be bad too because sometimes Mm -hmm. you know each other off set and it's like oh he's like a brother to me (laughs) you know it's so i mean these are professionals um they are used to being able to access their their sexual feelings their sexual attraction to meet somebody and be like whoa you're hot i can't wait to have sex with you you know it's Mm -hmm. a very different culture right so um so also what I try to do is deal with people that come to to the project with a certain philosophy and mentality similar to mine, that they're not just there for paycheck, right. that they want to create something that they can feel good about, that right. they're proud of, that represents something beautiful and real. And um, so I'll try to work with those people. I will work with those people repeatedly. Mm. But, um, but sure, you do get the times when um, you have two people that have never met. Um, they're perfectly open to working together, um, but they've never met before. But for some reason, they're not hitting it off. Right. You know, and right. the chemistry is like, oh, I don't know about this. Huh. And that's when I do really have to direct the scene. Mm. And I will, you know. That must, that must be awkward. I've, I mean, I've, I've watched a fair bit. I used to work for a porn company, actually. No way. Yeah, I worked Small for... <laughs> 
It's it, what happened was this was this was early in internet days, uh, like ninety six, ninety seven, something like that. I had just moved to Spain from um, San Francisco. I'd been in San Francisco, and so is it back in Spain. And one night I uh, was looking at this porn site. It was a private dot com you know they're this huge they used to be swedish and um they uh anyway the site i, I had worked as a photographer years earlier so i was looking at this site and the models were beautiful the photography was really nice you know as a, a former photographer you right. see right away the like wow the light's good you know yeah. that it's there's depth there's the and the and so I read a profile of a director or something, and it was in the worst English. It was just like ridiculous. So I copied it, underlined all the mistakes, and sent an email to the webmaster, right, saying, hey, you guys spend so much money on your site, and this English is really bad. I happen to be a you know web-based editor, which was pure bullshit. I didn't know what a web-based <laughs> editor was. And I sent it, and thinking, you know, nobody's ever going to answer, but what the hell? And, you know, sort of like a message in a bottle sort of thing. Right. And a week later, I get a call saying, would you be available for an interview? Please come to blah, 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 right in Barcelona. Wow. And it turns out this company was in the process of moving from Sweden to set up shop in Barcelona in oh Spain. Oh, my God. So I go in for this interview and it was this, you know, big warehouse full of Mac workstations. You know, there must have been mm -hmm. 50 workstations and guys sitting there doing their stuff. And at the time, it was the biggest um, distributor of porn in the world. Mm -hmm. And they they had all these magazines and DVDs and web streaming. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. When there was a lot of money in it. Yeah. And uh, so they hired me and as a web-based, you know, thing, and they would send me these a texts. A web-based editor. Yeah, exactly. Your field. I fake, fake it till you make it, right? So, yeah. It's one of the one of the many strange jobs I've had over well, the years. Well, then you should know a little more about porn now. I'm yeah, no, I'm you're, I'm you're feigning innocence. Dumb. Come on, I wrote a book about sex. How innocent say, can I be? Now. Yeah. Although there are areas where I'm sometimes like, you know, I'm surprisingly dumb about about porn and about sex. Yeah. People are like, oh, come on. Nobody you know, knows everything. Nobody knows everything. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. So before I forget, let's go through these other, okay. the other genres. Yes. So I, girl, girl, so, boy, girl. And then there was sweet cinema. And that was sort uh, of my answer to parodies. My um, partner wanted me to start making parodies when parodies were big. And I said, no, um, uh, no way. <laughs> parodies said, of, of um, mainstream know, like, films. Like this ain't the Flintstones triple X. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> where you're just like, oh, why? Why? Why are we watching Fred Flintstone have sex? Why is that necessary? So, Personally, I I find both Wilma and Betty pretty hot. I don't know about Fred. Yeah, but you know. Well, okay. I mean, I realize I'm just into that primitive a, women. I realize that thing. a lot of. <laughs> You're like, give me a nice cave girl. Give, <laughs> I can pull by the hair and I'm happy. <laughs> no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, no. I'm talking about the sex of Dawn cave woman who is assertive yeah. and autonomous and nobody's oh. pulling her by the hair. Really? Oh, no. no Nobody no. ever pulled a cave girl by the hair? Come well, on. No. if she Why wanted do we it. Like if it she so wanted much? it. Why do we like it? Where did those genes come from? Huh? <laughs> the, the pulling by the hair gene. We'll have to undecode the genome yeah, looking for that. Yeah, this is very mysterious. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll get into that. Um, so, so, so what I did was I created a sweet cinema, which right. was basically I was like, you know what I'll do is that I will be inspired by 
by movies that people are like, you know, iconic movies or, um, or things that were now, um, public domain, right. say books, uh-huh. things like that. And what I'll do is because I worked in, um, intellectual property law for a long time. So I was like, I, I, I'll change it enough that it's recognizable as the original story inspired by, but it could never be confused with the original. Right. It's not plagiarized. I don't lift any dialogue. I don't, uh, name the characters the same names. Mm. I, you know, I change everything that, uh, would get me into trouble. Right. So basically. it's not really a parody. So it's a based on, it would be like, you know, derivative like, in some it's, sense. right. It's yeah. like pretty woman was my fair lady or whatever. Do right. you know what I mean? Yeah. It's that idea. Yeah. So, um, so that's what I, that's what I did with that studio. That's and I did like last tango and, um, which was already pretty, Porny. I wanted to do that butter scene. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that gave me, that was actually really uh, a great thing for me artistically because it gave me a chance to get away from the formula of porn, which was four scenes with four different couples. And, you know, it's, it's Mm -hmm. kind of like, there's this, there's this formula that you have to adhere to because everybody in porn thinks that if you're doing things a certain way, they have to be done that way forever. It is very formulaic. Yeah. 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 It's very hard to go, well, you know, we could do something different. Oh no, we couldn't. (laughs) Is that because of what we were talking about earlier where, where you sort of you connect with a certain audience and audiences are very particular in their tastes. It's not the audience. The audience would love more diversity within the genre. Within that they, the genre. Okay. You know, within right. watching girl, girl movies, they'd love to see more variety and right. they'd love to see less formula. Um, but like would but, people who are into girl, girl movies, would they be into like a, you know, Butch Dyke scene? Um, generally not. Yeah, generally because that would subvert their sense of what they're looking at, right? Yeah, and I get into arguments with the girl-girl guy fans a lot, where I'm like, you know, you do, they'll say, well, I didn't get the feeling that this girl was a real lesbian because she had acrylic nails, and so they'll nitpick about right. that, and I'm like... You know, if I made videos showing you guys real lesbians, you yeah. run screaming in the other direction. Right. So I don't want to hear about how it's not authentic. So, so yeah, <laughs> that's know? all really interesting stuff. This, yeah. So guys who are looking at girl girl porn are fantasizing that these are lesbians. They're fantasizing about a world without male competition, I think. Ah, and interesting. And with these beautiful women that all sort of desire each other. I mean, I think ultimately the fantasy is that they would come in and they would be the guy. You and know? like all but, the women would be like, oh my God, finally. Well, I don't think it's that form, that specific of a fantasy, but I think that sort of right. underlies it is that, you uh, know, um, they're either, you know, voyeurs to the bone, which I, I don't know, maybe some of them are, but, um, but I think more likely it's just like, you know, they, they don't want to feel that sense of competition. They don't want to see a lot of times they say they don't want to see women pounded. They don't want to see women abused. Um, they don't like the way that the male female dynamic is depicted in porn. So that's why they watch girl, mm. girl porn rather than boy, girl. And that's why I was wondering if when I started making boy, girl movies, if some of those fans would come over and watch the boy girl because right. I was doing them in the same way that I was doing girl, girl, right. very real, very passionate and raw, but very real. And nobody was uh, being um, particularly abused, you know, right. um, and a lot of them did. A lot of them did start watching. Do those guys, are they comfortable with strap-ons? 
They are. A lot of them are very comfortable with strap-ons. Mm. I think it's just the idea that if there's a guy in the mix that they, I don't know, they have a distrust of, of other men or a disdain for them. There's something there. Mm. That Is there an overlap with, with cuck fantasies, do you think? I haven't seen that. Yeah. I haven't seen that. I think that might be a different fantasy altogether. Right. But also very sort of oriented toward men in a strange way, you know, or not strange in a negative sense, but, but it's like, yeah, relating to women in terms of how the woman's relating to a man. Well, yeah. In cuckolding, the guy wants to be humiliated. Right. That's his kink. He right. wants to be humiliated. By the man. By a well, and the woman, the, I guess, as yeah, well. Yeah, particularly if it's a big black man, right, with a, you yeah. know, Mandingo. Mandingo right. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's a big fantasy. They're, um, yeah, they're, but that's very separate. That's very different from the girl-girl fantasy. So, right. Yeah. Um, but so I, so sweet. Getting back to sweet cinema, that right. gave me an opportunity to go well. I have to give the same couple three sex scenes in this movie because it's basically a movie about this one couple. So that would be unheard of in a regular porn feature to give the same couple three scenes together. But I could do it when I was doing sweet cinema because, it, hey, it's part of the story. So, Are women, do you think in terms of porn, are women as um, demanding of that sort of variety as men are? Like you said, it would be unheard of to put the same couple in three scenes. Well, again, I, I'm talking more about the business end of it that my partners and the distributors, you know, uh, think. Okay. on the business end, it's kind of like it just chugs along the way it's always been. And right. people go, whoa, what are you doing if you try to do something different? I don't think it's the fans at all. I mean, I think now the fans are are really starting to demand more of, you know, the Internet has given them a voice for the first time. They can be right. anonymous and they can have a voice. They can yeah, never do that before the point. Internet. Yeah. So now they do demand things. And now I can make arguments for like... Huh. The fans are asking for this because they are, and that's the feedback, and it's right there on the internet for all to see. So It's funny. It sounds from what you're saying like the porn industry. I've always thought of, of the porn industry as being very Wild West, like, mm -hmm. hey, whatever works, you it, know, whatever it, makes money. Yeah. But it, it kind of sounds like you're saying that it's actually very traditional in some senses. It's very political here. Uh, it's um, very restrictive. It's, yeah. I mean, I thought when I came here, like, that it was going to be the Wild West and the land of the misfits. And it's mm. just kind of, you do your own thing here. And yeah. no, it's like any other business where yeah. it's just like, this guy is an idiot. Why is he in charge? And he's telling me to do something so stupid and nobody wants to see this. And you know, there, there's all of that. But he writes the checks. So yeah. And so, yeah. um, so yeah, I've, I've basically, I mean, luckily for me, I think it worked in my favor that I came into porn, not knowing any of these things about, porn, you know, and I was just, I wasn't trying to be like, quote, successful here. Mm. You know, I didn't have an agenda. I was just like, well, I just want to do some cool stuff and see what happens. And um, it was only because it took off and it got successful that then they're like, okay, well, you can try what you want, I guess, you know. We'll now, how long you been more. doing this? Mm, probably like six years now. Yeah. And yeah. is that when you came to Southern California or, Six or seven years? Oh, no, I've been back and forth here for years. My mother, um, I grew up in New York, but, um, and I was back and forth. My, my parents got divorced. My mother remarried a man who lived out here. And then uh -huh. I was back and forth between New York city and, and New here. York city. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting place to grow up. Oh yeah. <laughs> 
I loved it. Where, where did you live? Um, Midtown Manhattan. In Midtown. Second and second. On the east side. Yeah. Yeah. I lived in the Diamond District. I'm the only person, I think, who's ever lived in the Diamond District. Very busy down there. During the day. At night, it's empty. Oh, right. Yeah. Because it's pure commercial. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I had this bizarre situation. I was in, after college, I went to Alaska and worked on a salmon boat for two years. You're like a Renaissance guy, huh? You've done everything. <laughs> or a bomb, depending how you look at it. <laughs> a Renaissance really cool. you can vagabond. Yeah. Um, yeah, but anyway, after two summers in Alaska, I went, uh, to New York because there was a woman there I wanted to spend some time with. And, um, yeah, she lived in the South Bronx. And I actually Whoa. looked for an apartment <laughs> in the South Bronx. I had no Fine. idea. I didn't know New York at all, right? Yeah. Um, I had a boyfriend in the South Bronx, actually. I still know him. Yeah, I still yeah. know her, too. Weird. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, she's. I mentioned her in Sex at Dawn. She's the woman I saved from the monkey attack at the Oh, my very God, beginning. at the very beginning. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so, that story was hilarious. Yeah. So anyway, I think I've told the story before on the podcast, so I won't go into detail. But uh, through a strange series of coincidences, I ended up meeting a guy who whose family owned three buildings in the Diamond District, and he hired me as his personal assistant. So six months after arriving in New York, I got a job in a restaurant or something. And then, boom, I'm working in the Diamond District. And then we got to be friends. And I was living in Spanish Harlem, 106 and Lex in the 80s, which wasn't so good. And, um, yeah, this was like 85, 86, 87, something like that. And uh, so he he gave me a ride home one night. And, uh, you know, I was like, dude, you're going to die here. What is this? This Like, (laughs) why are you living here? <laughs> He's like, I have no money, you know. What, what do you expect? I actually always felt very safe in New York and in, in any part of yeah. New York. I always felt very. I was running the streets from the time I was eight, nine years old, and I always felt safe. Yeah, I I never had problems. I've never had any problems in New York, but yeah. the '80s were pretty ugly. I mean, I remember a lot of nasty stuff going down. There were mm, in the South Bronx. Well, I wasn't spending much time in the oh. South Bronx. Uh, she came. To and stayed with me in Manhattan mostly, but um, no, like la- <laughs> yeah, oh, there were shootings, yeah. you know, oh, okay. uh, yeah, robberies and well, I would crazy think stuff. there'd be a lot yeah. of crime down there with all the diamonds. <laughs> well, yeah, and there were armed guards everywhere and yeah. cameras. I mean, it was a really yeah. surreal place to live. But anyway, I lived there a couple years, and then I went and traveled in Asia for a year, and then I he hired me back on a different job in Hell's Kitchen, and I lived in oh. that point. I lived in the Lower East Side. A little south of Houston. Mm, that was okay. pretty crazy. That was eighty nine. Okay. It's a lot tamer now. I mean, you've been back. Yeah, I, I don't like the fact that Times Square isn't fun anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's been was, it's turned into a huge Starbucks. But. Yeah, that was where I first, you know, porn first captured my imagination, uh, and yeah. then just sort of like, oh, it's too bad that that's gone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, well. So, how old were you when porn captured your imagination? Oh boy, um, you know i I couldn't say exactly. I do know that when I was, you know, eleven, twelve years old, and started to really go over to Times Square a lot, my dad would take me there. We would go to the video arcades at night, and once my parents broke up, that mm. would be like our weekend activities. We'd go to Times Square together and play all the video games. Yeah. There are all these arcades there, right. and. Um, 
So I, you know, there were strip clubs there and you'd kind of catch a glimpse of the girls with the doors closing as you walk by. I would always try to peek in. There were prostitutes around and I was just very curious about, um, these women. They were, um, they just seemed to have this energy and excitement and they were beautiful. They looked so different than the mm. other women that I knew than right. my mom and my friend's moms, you know, and, um, so yeah, they seem like these magical creatures and they also seemed, um, it seemed like people were afraid of them. You know, there was this sort they of had power. fear that, um, you know, I wasn't supposed to grow up to be like that. Um, mm. there was this kind of like, you know, don't get too close to these types of people. Just this, this feeling that I picked up on that there was this attraction repulsion kind of thing going on with the sex industry and with women that were taking their clothes off and having sex on camera, dancing nude on stage. And that really intrigued me. I was, mm. um, then I got very curious about that and I started, you know, fantasizing about what these women were like and just in that way that you do when you're a kid. Well, maybe not all kids do this. <laughs> you know, that I way did. that you fantasize yeah. about prostitutes when you're a kid. But, <laughs> but it was kind of like that. They were yeah. just this exotic creatures that, um, you know, I wanted to know more about the way they lived and why people had this strange reaction to them. And how did you sort of express that interest right away or is it something that got put on hold because you mentioned you did intellectual property law or something oh yeah i worked as a paralegal for years but i i was um my father dated some dancers after he and my mom divorced and my father and i had a very sort of intellectually based relationship we would talk about all of these things but in a very analytical intellectual kind of way. And that, that was exciting to me. Was, I was he an engineer or something? No, he wasn't. He was a writer as well. Uh, um, he actually, um, he was friends with Truman Capote. And oh, really? Some of, yeah. The people of that, that era in like the Sutton Place area in Times Square. He um, Was he a novelist or a journalist? Or he wrote uh, magazine articles and mm -hmm. um, things like that. He wrote some, um, he wrote a lot about he wrote a lot about gambling, believe it or not. Mm. But um, but he, somehow he befriended all these people, and I don't even really know how. But he was friends with uh, Don Imus, you know. Sure, the big radio about, guy. Yeah. He would come over our house and talk about my dad on the radio all the time, and just um, my dad was a very interesting sort of charismatic person, and so he was um. You know, he would always talk to me about these things and talk very frankly with me about them. And, um, and I think, uh, that also, you know, kept my interest going. I, I just, um, I love those conversations. I love mm. to kind of go over it in my mind and try to analyze what made a woman desirable or beautiful or, or no, she's trashy as opposed to she's sexy. All of these concepts were very interesting to me from a very young age. Yeah. Understandably. Mm. And so you're still in New York at this point. Uh, yeah, starting to go back and forth. And did you think about, like, I want to get into this professionally? And uh, um, did you? It was starting. What, what was the route? How did, I guess what I'm asking is, how did you get here yeah, from there? It was starting to happen. I was starting, it was becoming more something that I would think about. Um, and, uh, you know, I wasn't interested in it in terms of like, oh, I want to party and I want to do drugs. I was never that kind of a person. Like, mm. I never 
did anything particularly wild in that regard. I just wanted to um, learn about it and be around it and get to know the women. That was yeah. that was really a motivating factor. Was the women were very interesting to me. Were you so. a good student in school? I I was a good student at school. I left school when I was twelve. Wow. So yeah. Why? Um, there was just, oh, there, you know, that was when everything was kind of falling apart in my family, you Mm. know, and, um, and so, uh, I was back and forth between my parents all the time and I just, I, I stopped going to school. So I didn't, I didn't return to school till I was 16. Then I started taking some college classes. I had to take tests to see if I could get into college because I hadn't been to school. (laughs) You did a GED or something? No, I just, I just, uh. I got tests. I got into John Jay. I got into SUNY purchase. Um, just be, I went to Marymount. I took classes there. I didn't go to John Jay. I got in, but I didn't go. Um, yeah, they, they tested me. Um, mm. I had to do tests. I had to write an essay. I kept learning and reading and yeah. I was always, you know, but no, I hadn't, I, I didn't have any formal education after that age. So I, I'm asking because in the few minutes we were talking when I was setting up, I stole a, a glance at your bookshelf over here. And you're obviously <laughs> one of many an intellectually uh, very active uh, person. Yeah. Yeah. There are uh, books all over the place. I only read. I don't watch television. Uh, good. Good. Um, yeah. It, it, I find it very interesting. You got David Sedaris. I see. Oh, I love David yeah, Sedaris. Me too. <laughs> that's that's a really then, naked. That's another, a great book. These are the, these are the ones that I I've read and I don't refer to as much, but all my science books and uh-huh. the things that I refer to all the time. Um, there, a lot of those are upstairs oh, right. and, and then I have more over there. in that case. Yeah. I see Jared diamond. I met him last week at Ted. Oh boy! Yeah, everybody's doing this TED thing. Yeah, yeah. It's I just learned about it. It's uh, it's a pretty interesting thing mm-hmm. to do if they invite you. It's kind of uh, well, it's fun in you know in the sense that being really really nervous is fun. Is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I never knew that. <laughs> uh, it was, I mean, for me, I don't know if fun's the word I would use. I, you know, I mean, look at it this way. I was there five days. I spoke for 12 minutes. So the ratio of, uh, you know, work to pleasure was, was pretty good. Oh, okay. So you got to hang out and stuff. Oh, yeah. I got okay. to hang out. I got to meet, you know, Peter Gabriel and Jared Diamond and, you know, Bono and all these. And you met crazy- Steve Pinker, right? Did you meet Steve Pinker once uh, before or you never I've had? never met Steve Pinker. Oh, okay. No, no. Uh, I don't think he'd like to meet me, actually. I, I was noticing. I was actually, I was wondering what your deal is with Steve Pinker because I was reading in your book and I thought, hmm. <laughs> yeah, no. Somebody doesn't like Steve Pinker. Well, I don't. I don't know him personally at all. I, I, supposedly a lovely, lovely man, and I just yeah. actually exchanged emails with him oh, because okay. I, I wrote to him about um, a question that I had about language development. And He's the he, guy. He was yeah. gracious enough to respond That's in detail, great. and I was, you know, I'm sure he doesn't know who I, <laughs> which was probably good, but um. But uh, yeah, he. Uh, I had a, a hypothesis that I had come up with, and um, you know, I tried to ask a few scientists that I knew, and they were, you know, of course, I I, I read all Steve Pinker's books, and they were like, you should really write to Steve Pinker. And there's, uh, I'm friends with Bruce Hood, who wrote. Um, he's he's been doing all that st- all the books about, um, you know, the the self illusion. That um, he wrote the self illusion, and he's. Um, 
He was at the amazing meeting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know his okay. work. Um, similar to you in the sense that bringing different things together, bringing different ideas right. together, um, you know, kind of that big picture thinking. So the illu- self-illusion, um, is that uh, is that the idea that we have many selves and we pretend we have one? That the self is an illusion and it's a construct and, you know, the reason right. why. And, and uh, it's, it's a fascinating book, actually. It's a great book and it's got a lot of attention. But he had Steve Pinker's email. <laughs> Uh-huh. He gave it to me. So, um, so anyway, I, I, um, I was wondering what your deal with Steve. Yeah, no, is. nothing personal at all. Uh, obviously. So, yeah. Um, but I think that Steven Pinker, I think is, uh, an extremely political person in his writings in evolutionary psychology, not in linguistics, you know, his linguistics work. Mm-hmm. He's like Noam Chomsky, you know, like right. linguistics is, one area that I think he knows very, very well. Mm-hmm. Then he gets into evolutionary psychology and he gets very political, but I don't think he's upfront about his politics. And what, that's what, what are, what are the politics? I'm just, curious. well, the politics are, for example, in his last book, um, the better angels of our nature, I think it's called that one. I haven't read yet. Um, well, it's very much what we talk about in sex at dawn is, is the section in the blank slate, which he also used in his TED talk, which is laying the groundwork for this book, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature, where he's arguing that uh, human societies are the least violent now that they've ever been. Right. And so this is what we call the neo-Hobbesian perspective of, you know, life in prehistory was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, right. and short, mm-hmm. which is political because even Hobbes, when he was writing that, was arguing in favor of the monarchy as a way to protect us from our base nature. Mm-hmm. And so people like Steven Pinker are advancing that argument in the contemporary world. And it's still a very political argument because mm-hmm. what you're saying is without government, without religion, without these sort of paternalistic controlling institutions, Mm -hmm. we would destroy each other Mm -hmm. and ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's based upon a vision of human nature that's very chimpanzee derived, very violent, aggressive, uh, male dominant, and all that kind of stuff. The problem is, uh, you know, and I accept that as an argument, the problem is that you if you make that argument on purely scientific terms and you don't acknowledge the fact that it's a political argument and you don't mention bonobos who are equally related to humans, but you rely a lot on chimpanzees and you, what Steven Pinker did was he set as his baseline for um, male deaths due to warfare. Mm-hmm. He said, let's look at these 10 hunter gatherer societies who are a reflection of our prehistoric ancestors, right? Mm-hmm. But those aren't prehist- those aren't hunter gatherer societies. Mm-hmm. The right. anthropologists who study those societies, none of them would say, "Well, this is a." They're but not. But is he comparing us to chimpanzees, or is he comparing us to to um, you know primitive man? I mean, because we're- well, see, I mean, even the co- yeah, he, what he's doing both. I mean, he anyone who makes these arguments of the sort of prehistoric origins of human violence will generally include chimpanzees in their argument because, you know, like demonic males, Richard Rangham, I think wrote that. I haven't read that, but, Um, but I mean, you know, we're not, we come from the same ancestor as chimpanzees, but we're not, we're not from chimpanzees. So so is he speaking more about, 
you know, uh, early man and our behavior, what we know about our behavior and yeah. in clans and, and hunter gatherer yeah. society. Right. Yeah. I mean, generally these, these arguments in evolutionary psychology often resort to, and we've done it as well in sex at dawn will resort to, let's say, look at hunter gatherer societies because there are all these commonalities and, and immediate return right. hunter gatherer societies. Mm-hmm. And we know our ancestors were immediate return hunter gatherers, meaning that there was no accumulated food. Mm-hmm. resources, right? And they were nomadic, so there wasn't a lot of private property because right. you'd have to schlep it all around. Um, and so that's fine. That's that's a common uh, argument or common methodology, right? The problem is that Steven Pinker said, let's look at these 10 societies and take that as our baseline for human violence and prehistory. And these societies are valid be- representatives because they're hunter-gatherer societies, but they weren't hunter-gatherer societies. Okay. They were get- they were societies that had gardens, domesticated animals, and so on, which any anthropologist will tell you have completely different levels of violence. Why? Right. Because they have something to fight over. They mm-hmm. have accumulated resources. So that was fundamentally dishonest, and that's what we're pointing out in Sex at Dawn. Well, wouldn't wouldn't any community have something to have resources to fight not accumulated resources not accumulated resources but still they would have i mean there would be reasons to fight wouldn't there I mean, it depends and some people would argue that they would fight over women some people would say well they would fight territory. over territory mm-hmm. but then other people including us would say well if we're talking about 50,000 years ago when world population was a couple million people uh it's very easy to walk away the world's empty of human beings. So fighting over territory, and there's historical data that supports this, fighting over territory is something that tends to happen on islands, right? Where population, you know, quickly saturates available territory. Um, Or when population levels get high enough that walking away isn't really an option because you're surrounded by other tribes or whatever. But you have to think too about how, Seldom people walk away from things even now. I mean, it becomes like a power well, there's struggle. There's nowhere to walk to now. But That's I mean, the there's this power struggle that people have. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. going to be the one to be the weaker person. So, you know, I mean, I don't know what kind of what kind of evidence there is, or you know, I, I mean, I know that it's kind of fragmented what we know about about our early days. Um, but I just would think that it was probably pretty violent i mean we seem to be violent violent beings i mean we seem to be fairly violent okay but see the problem is if you um look at the data for example for violence Mm -hmm. um clearly some people are very violent but most people aren't most people in fact, if you look at uh, military training records from World War II, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to get people to kill other people. But isn't that because they've been socialized not to be violent? I, mean, I don't think we're socialized not to be violent. Half, at least half our, our media is killing people. You know, you, uh, I, I don't remember the numbers. But it's against the law. I mean, it's, a, you, you know, we all well, know that we're not allowed to, there's, and the, it is religion and it's law that tells us, no, you can't do these things. No, religion tells us everything. I right? know, but an religion eye for an tells eye us, and, oh, sure. But, but religion tells us that in like the Ten Commandments, you know, um, and, uh, and, you know, obviously 
you go to jail for the rest of your life, or you get the te- the death penalty if you're killing people. Unless you so, do it with you know government sanction, right? Different thing, but right. you know that's why that's why I would think it's hard for people. You know, you're you're raised with this moral and um, and also you know legal notion that uh, to to hurt other people is costly and it's wrong, and um, you'll suffer for it. So. Yeah, yeah, it's a mixed message. Uh, on the one hand, you're you're being told it's wrong. On the other hand, we're you know watching professional football where people get carried off the field, and we celebrate that. And because I think we're drawn, we're arts. drawn to violence. We're very drawn to violence. That I think is is suggestive of the fact that that's something that you know we've got in us. We want to see this. Mm, some know? do. Yeah. 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 yeah in, in any case, I think you know that's an argument. Uh, a very complex argument. It and, is, yeah. And my problem with Steven Pinker, as I said, isn't that he made the argument. It's that I think he made it in a way that misrepresented what he was actually saying. Because you think there's like a political motivation. Because there. he said these are immediate return hunter-gatherer mm. societies that are representative of our ancestors, and they're not. And they're not. Okay, you know? got it. So it's a fair argument to make, but the methodology misrepresented the data. And so that okay. that's that's the point we make in the book. Well, he'd probably want to know about that. Well, he does know about it, but he hasn't <laughs> oh. responded. So, oh, okay. yeah, that's why I don't think he'd really want to meet me. That would be, I would like to see you guys meet. <laughs> Cage fighting. <laughs> Cage match, exactly. Two, two old, dorky white guys fighting it out in the play. Awesome. No, what's it called? Not the Pleasure Dome. The I don't the, know. The, I've never, I've never, I just hear about some, UFC fights. And yeah. Cage fighting, MMA and stuff. I've never watched it. I've never watched it either, but I've sort of um, become a bit of a friend with. Um, Joe Rogan, who's the the color commentator for those things. Okay. Yeah, very interesting guy. He, he does a podcast that gets about a million downloads per week. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah, I, wow. I did it a, a couple months ago, and I'm going to do it again in a, a week, two weeks, something. Um, interesting guy. He's sort of an intellectual badass comedian. Nice. You, yeah, very you're unusual seeing, combination. You know, you're seeing a lot more of these uh, sort of Renaissance people, kind of like, you know, they're they're brilliant and they're they're professors, but they're also, you know, like I I know this one um, guy named Stan Kent, and he's an astrophysicist, and he works with NASA, and he does workshops at the Hustler store. You know, like wow. he's he writes all this erotica, and he just looks like um he looks like a rock star who wears like really like beautiful clothes like the like in those those Beatrice Potter um stories in England where they would you know put together the the coats for the king the mice would put together the coats <laughs> for the king. he looks like he's wearing stuff like that like it's yeah. all embroidered and everything but wow. his hair is purple and wild and and he's you know he knows everything about physics and he can you know build these rocket ships and so i i'm just noticing that this is like really a renaissance period where people are more than one thing these days yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I, th- I think there, there's, and maybe it's because of what you were saying earlier about the internet and, and being able to connect to an audience. You don't need to necessarily go through the channels and the filters that would have filtered people like that out before. I think it's that, that has a lot to do with it. The internet has opened the world up and mm. showed us that there are many different types of people and it's not just our own little bubble that we live in. Right. And also, um, 
I think, you know, during times of, of recession and depression, people tend to, there, there tends to be a renaissance period that happens where people come out of their little area and try something new. Mm. They branch out. They're not making enough money doing what they're yeah, doing. And they yeah, go into don't another have as much area. To lose. And they, yeah, yeah, you see people kind of mix and matching things in a way yeah. that they didn't have to before. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, do you want to get back to porn, or you oh, want to keep yeah. talking let's, about let's violence? Let's keep talking about or? Steve Pinker. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> let's get Steve Pinker in a porn movie. There you go. Amor é um livro. Sexo é esporte. Sexo é escolha. Amor é sorte. Amor. É pensamento, teorema, amor é novela, sexo é cinema, sexo é imaginação, fantasia, amor é prosa, sexo é poesia. O amor nos torna patéticos Sexo é uma selva de epiléticos Amor é I mean, I, I'll tell you one thing that I, I was actually funny. I was talking, I was in a talent agency yesterday and somehow, oh, we were talking about Nina Hartley. Mm. Right. And yeah. um, because I, I mentioned I was going to be speaking with her next week. Right? Okay. And I mentioned you and mm -hmm. I said, and, and they said, well, I thought you, I thought on your podcast, you'd like talk to scientists and doctors. And I said, well, actually, both these women are really, really smart. And they're like, really? I said, yeah. And I, I said, in fact, there is a whole sort of community in porn of very high IQ people. And I, I was, you know, giving some examples of people I've known over the years and people I don't know, but I've read about, you know, and, um, and they were, they were surprised by this, but yeah. I find it really interesting. And I, I spent a fair amount of time in Thailand mm -hmm. and I see a corollary there where in Thailand, there are a lot of businesses that are owned by like very attractive women in their forties, fifties and up who were hookers mm -hmm. and what they did was they looked you know at 19 or whatever the age was they looked at their options and they said okay i can marry a thai guy and have that life mm -hmm. mm, i don't really want that or i can have a series of foreign boyfriends and whatever right. save my money mm -hmm. and open a business and a lot of them have done it and so there's you know i never not for any moralistic reason, but I never got into the Thai girlfriend situation. Um, but I did notice that every cafe and bar I liked hanging out in seemed to be run by a really attractive middle-aged <laughs> Thai woman. And I talked to some of them about it. And they all told me the same story, you know? Yeah. Well, I think here too, um, you know, for a long time, the image of a woman doing sex work is somebody who's at loose ends, has no other options, right. is uh, compromised in some ways on drugs, is a victim. Right. Um, but I think like, you know, the age of the courtesan seems to be coming back because I, I'm noticing that women, um, 
are incredibly intelligent and well-read and just, um, they are great conversationalists and funny and, um, you know, all of those things that you hear about the, the courtesans having been done yeah. when that was something to be, you know, right. you would, uh, you would be uh, the mistress of a king or, you know, someone else in a highly placed position. You weren't what people think of, you know, prostitutes being today, basically like street trash or throwaways, right. you know, yeah. um, I feel like that that's sort of coming back, you know, women are, um, they're incorporating sex work into something that's bigger they're they're uh, it's part of their identity and it's part of their their sexuality and they control it and they work it like a business right you know right which honestly how is that different from marriage yeah. <laughs> no it's it's not i mean you know that i mean obviously the the downside uh, i guess or the tricky part is that you know, I mean, this is something, I guess it's a, it's a slippery slope to start putting price tags on things that are supposed to be given, that are supposed to be, quote, sacred, that are supposed to be uh, sincere, mm -hmm. um, you know, can, uh, can be dangerous yeah. to people, I think, in various ways, both the person giving it and the person receiving sure. it to pretend that something is is sincere or felt when it's not when there's actually an agenda to make money you know then you're getting into tricky territory um yeah although i wouldn't you say that there are often hidden agendas in any relationship you know particularly between men and women oh sure the, i mean i think the point is that there's not supposed to be yeah so if your whole deal is this is what i do i you know i put a price tag on things that are supposed to be um voluntarily given to a person that you feel sincere feelings for, I'm putting a price tag on that and I'm going to sell it. Yeah. I think that there's, um, you know, there's just part of, of us that recoils a little bit at that just because it's something that's supposed to be meaningful. People are in search of meaning in their lives. And I don't think it's, you know, you can just sweep it away and go, Oh, well, it's because we're so puritanical. We're so moralistic. I think there's a real need for us to, to feel that life has meaning and that love has meaning. And that there's a part of us that goes, oh, you know, you're selling it. <laughs> Do you think that the people who sell it are hurt by that experience? I think it depends. I mean, one thing I've noticed working in porn is that I, I really do feel it's like with any, it's like with anything really, it depends on how much like excess is involved, how often you're doing it, how imbalanced your life becomes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that that it's important to have balance and to um, to keep the right state of mind and to, to uh, be able to isolate something like that and keep it in its place and not have it take over everything and start informing everything you do and every relationship you have. Right. And I think that there are people in porn that are working every single day and, um, you know, they're not necessarily having sex with a partner at home because they are having sex on set every day. Right. And I think that can be damaging just because, you know, you're having sex every day with somebody that you don't necessarily know that you wouldn't necessarily be having sex with in real life. And it's, it, you can get imbalanced spiritually, physically, all these things. Yeah. So yeah, I would never make the argument that, oh yeah, it's great. No matter what, sex work is awesome. Of course not. No work is awesome all no. the time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's why they call it work. <laughs>
Yeah. yeah. If you're not doing it by choice, you know, then, um, yeah. then, and that's all you're doing and you're doing it all the time, you know. Have you been on both sides of the camera? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that's, that's when I really sort of came to that conclusion because the, the times that I've, I haven't obviously like had to work as a performer to, you know, as for income. So I could choose when I wanted to do it, um, what projects I wanted to do, who I wanted to work with. And when you can do it that way, it's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. And I would sort of treat it like, you know, almost like you hear about uh, prize fighters, boxers treating a big match. It's kind of like I would think about the person in the days before. I wouldn't have sex with anybody in my personal life. Mm -hmm. I would just kind of be focused on this. And it can really be – an amazing experience and, you know, um, something very unique and something very expansive, you know, um, this magical world that most people don't get access to. But if you're doing it all the time and it's become a chore or it's become something that you, you have to numb yourself to. Are you able to, when, when you're on camera, are you able to forget the lights and the sound guy standing there and all the... To a great degree, as long as you're doing it in the way that I do it, which is to, um, you know, let the people just have sex, you know, and not be interrupting them all the time. If you're constantly being interrupted, obviously, you're not... You're going to be more aware of the fact that you're, you know, being filmed. But, um, But no, you can really get into that headspace where you shut out everything else. I mean, I think that's one of the features of, of sex in general is that you, it does put you so in the moment, you know, that's one of the reasons I think we like it so much. We like right. things that put us right in the moment and get us out of our heads. You ever read Edward Abbey? No. Do you know him? I've heard that name. He wrote a book called Desert Solitaire. That's sort of a cult classic. I have heard about that book and people have told me I should read it it's, for it's years. It's a beautiful book. Yeah. Yeah. And then he wrote a bunch of novels um, called The Monkey Wrench Gang. There was a, a series about eco-terrorists who would like put sugar in the gas tanks of road building equipment. And that sort of started the Earth First movement that was blowing shit up for a while in the okay. 80s and 90s. But anyway, he um, his novels aren't very good in my opinion, but Desert Solitaire is a beautiful book. But the reason I mention it is that somewhere in that book he he's talking about sex and he says – that it's the only, um, he's talking about, um, you know, the national park system and how we've sort of like set aside these little pockets of wildness and mm-hmm. paved everything else over. Right. And then he turns and looks at the human psyche and he says, the only wilderness left in us is our sexuality. Everything else is cultivated. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's truth to that. It's, it's, um, it's also, uh, I think, you know, what what Schrodinger talks about in um, What is Life? Have you read that? No. Um, it's, it's that when you're, when you're forced to be in the moment, you come alive and you feel engaged in a way that um, puts us in touch with our, I think, with our animal selves when we were always in the moment. Um, which we can't be anymore, which our conscious mind made sure that we won't be, you know, and we're always wandering into the past or into the future, but we're rarely right here right now, unless there's something happening that grabs our attention. And I think that's why people are drawn to, you know, sex or um, meditation, 
Drugs. Surfing. Yeah. Um, well, drugs can sometimes numb you or they make you Depends have on the drum. I'm thinking hallucination. Yeah. yeah. Hallucin- but I mean, natural things that put you in the moment, right. a natural state that you can get to through, you know, a rush of adrenaline or, you know, um, martial arts or, right. you know, any of these things that um, make people feel that they're alive and they're, yeah. you know, I just feel so alive when I'm doing that. I'm so addicted to it. You know, that they have mm-hmm. all, they have that in common. And he was talking in, in what is life about, um, about how if you're driving home from work, uh, the same way every day, you, you just, you wander into your own thoughts. You just, you know, you're thinking about whatever you're thinking about right. until the day that, the road is closed and there's a detour sign. Now you're awake. Now you're alert. Now you have to pay attention. And that's kind of what sex does or what any of, you know, these other activities do is just to put us in the moment and um, make us feel engaged with, with life and with another person and with our environment and whatever's happening. We're right there. And that's, I think, you know, my personal belief is that that's, that's the thing that we're always striving for and that we've lost. And why we're tortured. We're tortured by the past. We're tortured by thoughts of the future. And we're always trying to get in the moment. And it's really hard. And getting harder all the time, I think. Because the distractions. You know, the the book I'm working on now is called Civilized to Death. And it's very Mm. much focused on what you just said. And it it just seems that a lot of uh, the, the, the impetus of civilization is in creating more and more complex distractions. Oh, yeah. I mean, at TED last week, they were showing the new Google Glasses, you know, where you, where the computer screen is in your glasses and you've got a camera. So you're recording, like I could be recording you right now, you wouldn't even know, right? And oh I could see... Google really is evil. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No. But of course, they present it as, oh, think how much this is going to help you. You know, like you, I could be like looking up Schrodinger on Wikipedia right now inside my glasses and you wouldn't know. And I could, oh, yeah, of course, Schrodinger is what is life. Yeah. And I'm reading it up. In oh, the, that's awful. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the machine is getting closer and closer and, closer, and you know, it's just one step from the brain. And yeah. then, you know, there's what do they call it? The, the, uh, there's the name for when the human and the machine come together, singularity, oh. when that's when we no longer die because we actually merge with machines. machines. Mm. It does seem to be where we're going, but and I think you would agree that the further we get from that biological route, the, the less happy we are. Yeah. I mean, that's something that, you know, I think that's what we really just keep going back to and looking at. I mean, I, I suppose that when we are half machine, maybe we won't be doing that anymore. We won't feel the need to to find this greater meaning or to, you know, um, have more spiritual fulfillment. But right. it's certainly very important to us now. It's still very important to us. And I'm, I'm seeing that with my movies, actually. Um, you know, that's kind of, uh, my period pieces do great things that have to do with the simpler time where people just, mm. it was about feelings and it was, you couldn't just act on every emotion. There was, uh, you know, there were conflicts, there were inner conflicts. People had, um, a sense of morality or a sense of right and wrong that they were struggling with, you know, um, in ways where I think, you know, nowadays, uh, People are more inclined to just do whatever they feel like doing. Mm. And with that, we lose something. We lose something that's important to us. 
and it's very difficult to strike that balance. And, um, and, you know, like I've heard, I've heard the arguments like Susan Block always argues the, the, um, are they bonobo apes? Is that how bonobo? You, bonobo yeah. apes. And I've just never understood that. I mean, it, it, you know, you can, there are so many different species of animals that behave in so many different ways. And I, I just don't, I don't believe we should all be running around just randomly having sex with each other. And that would be, oh, it would be a great civilization. I mean, I, I think that we're a very unique animal because of our consciousness and the way we've developed and, and our spiritual needs, quite frankly, that, you know, that are really very big. I mean, even if you don't attach them to anything religious, which I don't, um, but you can't deny, and I've seen working in porn, that more freedom and less restrictions and more like, oh, I'll have another helping of that. It doesn't make anybody happy. It makes right. them empty. And why is that? You know? Yeah, although, you know, looking at the Catholic Church, we see what happens when you say, no, you can't have any of that. So there is a middle path. Of course. But yeah. I'm just saying that, you know, the idea that total freedom or to that we want that, that we would be better for it, that uh, that's where happiness lies, that, you know, um, I think there's a great need to make things special. Mm. To have ritual, to have something that goes, you know what, this is special to me. This yeah. is different. You know, one of the, the points I, I often, I try not to forget to make when I give public presentations, and I do talk about bonobos in the presentation and some of the similarities between bonobo sexuality and human sexuality. But we use the term promiscuous to talk about our ancestors and mm -hmm. that we evolved as a promiscuous species. And mm -hmm. I think that's pretty evident in the, you know, in our bodies and, and so forth. But when I say promiscuous, I don't mean having sex with strangers and I don't mean meaningless sex mm -hmm. because our ancestors lived in these hunter-gatherer groups that were extremely intimate. Right. So they knew each other very, very well. Right. And so people, you know, project that into the modern world or frame it in modern right. terms and they say, oh, promiscuous, that means having sex with strangers mm -hmm. and then you never see them again. But that's not at all what we're talking about. We're just about. having sex without much thought, just kind of having, you know, multiple partners. It's not even necessarily that you don't know them, but I think, you know, I'd, I'd describe some people that I know as promiscuous that just, you know, have multiple partners constantly. Mm. Right. <laughs> Rotating. Right. <laughs> Rotating. <So. laughs> Rotating partners. So, um, if, if some of our listeners want to check out your films, what would you direct them toward? Is there? Well, now, yeah, we didn't get to my new studios. Okay, I had, I had left, studios. Um, I had left Mile High for a new deal with AEBN, which is the biggest uh, VOD company in the world. And AEBN.net, they, uh, they are my partner in um, my studios, my current studios, uh, Girl Candy, which is all girls, lesbian films. Uh, hard Candy, which is boy-girl, straight boy-girl movies. Um, then there's Rock Candy, which is my gay studio, which I'm really excited about. And um, that's all men. And then uh, Trans Romantic, which uh, actually um, it's been a really amazing year for Trans Romantic. We won Best New Studio. We um, at you know the, all the award shows basically AVN and uh, Expos and um, the Tranny Awards and um, and that's uh, trans females um, and trans males too you know um, in uh, basically storyline driven mm. 
uh, situations with real sex. And uh, it's something, I guess, that nobody had thought to do before for some reason. But it's, so it's, it's, uh, it's gone over really well. And we're really excited about that one. Is it true that a lot of straight women like gay male porn? Yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. What do you think? What's going on there? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, we like to look at men. I guess that the men are really showcased in gay right, porn, right? Whereas and they're more attractive porn, men. I mean, sometimes, yeah. yeah. And um, in straight porn, I think the guy is generally filmed from the waist down. Right. He's not really a human being. He's right. just, you know, what yeah. they call a stunt cock. <laughs> So <laughs> I don't film them like that. And my, right. in fact, I had a lot of um, gay men that were writing to me when I started doing uh, my boy-girl films because I treated the man, you know, equal equal camera time. Uh, right. Focus on his face, right. everything, same as the woman. So, right. um, so I had a lot of, of gay fans. Um, so it might be that, and just you know, if you if you find the male body erotic and you. It's just another, it's another uh, preference. It's another kink. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love my gay studio. I'm, I'm really enjoying it a lot. So. And do you, do you direct all these films? I write everything. I direct really? everything. You must be really yeah. busy. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's nonstop. But yeah, I've always written and directed everything. I created the studios myself. So I do everything. I write the box cover copy. I write a lot of press releases. I, I do everything. You're mine. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> wow. And you read. I don't know I, how you do find read. time to read. So no TV. Do you yeah, that frees up some time, yeah. huh? Do you uh getting back to your your early days when you were just getting into or sort of intrigued by porn and all that, were there particular porn stars that you were really interested in? Or that you resonated yeah. with? Um, well, there were girls that I would... I wasn't really watching porn, um, you know, when I was when I was first getting interested in it. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you're asking about when I was, like, way younger. Or are you talking yeah, about Yeah, when now? you first became aware yeah. of it. I mean, I know you It was like... I don't know. Like, um, there was Candy Barbour. There was Nina Hartley. Um, there was Sharon Mitchell. Um, I don't know. She was very androgynous. She started uh, AIM, which was where we would all go to get tested. Um, oh, okay. They closed down, but um, but she became a, a very big, important person in the industry after she stopped performing. Um, yeah, it was like uh, like the you know the the late eighties, I guess mid late eighties. I was just mm-hmm. kind of like. Um, I was aware of certain people. I would notice that they were really pretty. I would see them on a magazine cover. Right. Seika. Seika. Seika, I remember wow. from when I was little. Little. You must little have been girl. really little. Because re- yeah. Seika was like the first porn star I was aware of. Yeah. She was big. Seika was and big. Uh, Vanessa Del Rio. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, sort Del of the Rio. same time. You know, the, the yeah. very light and the very dark. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. She so was great. that was yeah, I remember <laughs> I remember seeing a picture of her in Times Square when I was I was very young. Yeah. And being like, Oh, you know, she looks like a, a Hollywood movie star like a Marilyn Monroe or something. Yeah. You know? yeah. She um, was was she Swedish? Or pretending to be. Huh? I don't know. She's still around. She has a Twitter. So uh-huh. yeah, we could cool. ask her. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> what about Taylor Taylor Hayes? Do you ever meet her? 
No, uh, she there was, was a Taylor St. Clair who was very beautiful, uh, very beautiful. She was part Native American. I always wanted to meet her, work with her. I actually did um, interview her once for a, an article, but I never met her. Mm. But yeah, she was really beautiful. Um, so many really fascinating and, and interesting and gorgeous women over the years, you know, no shortage of those. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Well, good. Is there anything else you wanted to cover? We. No, no. I mean, there's so I could talk to you for hours. Yeah, obviously, you said you were we could ask just, me all these science questions. I know. I wanted other than to, Stephen Pinker. I know. I, he'll we be happy to know you came to his defense. Into, sorry, I do. I do love Stephen Pinker. <laughs> I'm sorry, I love him. Well, I, I don't unlove him, Stephen. If you're listening, give me a call. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, somebody. Um, Did you read The Language Instinct? Uh, no, no, I haven't read that. I read the blank slate. The blank slate is great, but you got to read the language instinct. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm I'm really not that big into linguistics. I read a great book recently, um, Daniel Everett, and it's called uh, Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes There. Mm. And he's he's a very interesting guy. He was a missionary who went to the upper Amazon to, you know, proselytize and ended up living with this group of people called the Pinaha. And he, they converted him. So he gave up his Christian faith. He sort of became an animist with them. And he's one of the only, I think he is the only person alive now who speaks their language. And it's an extremely interesting language because it seems to have no, I think it's called recursion where it's, it's like a, again, I'm no linguistic Mm -hmm. expert, but it's like, you couldn't say, um, the dog that lives under the porch bit my sister. You would have to say there's a dog. The dog lives under the porch. The dog oh. bit my sister, right? You can't like build They're Russian doll sort of ideas. things grammatically. Yeah. And according to Chomsky's understanding of universal grammar, incursion is built into the human brain. Hmm. So it's become this huge oh. test case and a really big deal. That's and yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he's at either Harvard or MIT now. I don't remember which, but super interesting guy, 20 years living with these people. Wow. And so I'm very interested in his work from an anthropological perspective. Sure. Um, but if you're interested in linguistics and it sounds like you're also into very, anthropology, yeah. you might want to check it out. It's a yeah. really cool book. No, very definitely. interesting guy. Yeah. Write that name down for me so I can get yeah. that. That does sound fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I'll jot it down. And a friend of mine named John Colopinto, who writes for the New Yorker, went and stayed up there for a while. And there's a great New Yorker article about him called "The Interpreter" really? that oh. John wrote. Yeah, and we mentioned it in Sex of Dawn. Actually, it's it's uh, it's fantastic. Anyway, okay, so let's uh, <laughs> let's end with plugging your stuff. So you've okay. said your website. You've yeah. said your it's girlcandyfilms. Uh, Girl Candy Films. Uh, hardcandyfilms.com, transromantic.com, rockcandyfilms.com. And um, you're very active on Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter. It's at Brain Junk. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't have a website for myself, but, uh, you know, Google me. <laughs> You'll find my movies. Yeah. Don't steal them. Don't buy steal them. them. Buy them. <laughs> and so is there any film that you were in that you're particularly proud of that you'd, you'd direct people toward? Um, your greatest performances? No, no, <laughs> but there, there are movies that, um, 
that I'm really extra proud of, like my, my first rock candy movie, my first gay movie, um, is called his mother's lover. And it was at the top of the VOD charts for three months. Everybody expected it to fail because mm. <laughs> it was a period piece. And it was very, like they said, Oh, the gay audience isn't going to go for, for this, but they did in a big way. And so um, are there gay musicals? I mean, not gay musicals, porn musicals. Um, there sometimes are. I think there was like a Glee thing or something. There was, they did some, you know, <laughs> yeah, take off like on fairy, that. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing that we, you know, I guess we'll have to get into some other time. Is <laughs> just that, you know, the, the, um, the separation between what's sexy and what's funny or entertaining in another right. way or the, the, you know, the way that I approached my work in terms of um, wanting to stimulate the right part of the brain. And uh -huh. I think that that's a consideration that a lot of porn producers need to, to kind of remember, but um, that's my personal opinion. Mm. <laughs> so like comedy might interfere with the erotic response. It's a release. You're laughing. It's a release of tension. Uh, and you mm. want to build the tension. Yeah. Uh, I see. I mean, do you masturbate when you're cracking up the, comedian on tv yeah you know it's different. sarah silverman i'll tell you <laughs> <laughs> i'm not talking about the hot comedians that are like cute i'm talking about just in general if you're laughing yeah, yeah. you're not thinking about sex you're while you're laughing feeling erotic, yeah. you know so yeah um, i yeah i you know some people i've i've been with women for in in bed who say they love to laugh in bed and i i feel like okay you like to be relaxed Right. And have a good time. Right. But honestly, laughing sort of like breaks the mood for me. You're right. Yeah. 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 It's... It takes away from the passion and the tension and, yeah. you know, that sort of animal eroticism, you know, right. turns it into something more casual. And... and I end up like sort of looking, seeing myself. Yeah. from outside which i want to be inside that's right. the whole point yeah yeah it takes you yeah. into a different like social area yeah you know and, yeah, you're um, right. and so yeah that's uh that's another thing that we didn't get to talk about but there's so much i didn't get to talk about with you but oh well well if there's, <laughs> we, we can keep going as an eater your podcast will be like six <laughs> hours long be well, like, okay. i told you i went to do joe rogan's podcast I, I said so what is this an hour and he was like oh no we just talk as long as we want and the last one went four and a half hours i was like what and then he edits it like no no and he puts it up live whoa yeah and the first thing he did was pass me this incredibly strong joint so I, I hit this joint and then I was like falling out of my chair and they're like, oh my God, I've got a four hour podcast ahead of me and I can't even remember my name. Please. <laughs> no wonder they go on for four hours. Everybody's high. Everybody's just trying to like get their balance back. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, but I mean, there's just there, you know, between when I meet somebody like you that knows about science and, you know, knows a lot about sex and just want, you know, there's so many different things I can talk to you about. So, well, let's, yeah. we can do a part two sometime. Yes, definitely. All right, you're not going. I'll email anywhere. you. I'll be emailing you now. Good. Or something else. Good. And we can we can accumulate a, a list of things to talk about. Good. <laughs> All right, folks. So so look for that. There will be a, a part two of this podcast where we'll we'll get down into the weeds of the science sex. Let's intersection. Do Let's do yeah. that next time. Okay. All science. All science. Okay. All sexy science. Thank you. Thank you. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. 
you're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever know Said it for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Give it a rest, you're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time? Think about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say When everyone we ever know Sit for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away We're gonna die one day Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.